I want to talk to you on this subject today. It's a gift. It's a gift. Not everything in life we feel like is a gift. But Paul, the apostle, is going to say today that there are some things that are a gift. When I graduated high school, I still had a desire to play college uh, basketball. So the Lord opened an opportunity when Buddy Fortenberry was on the board of East Texas Baptist College in Marshall, Texas. I expressed a desire to go to a board meeting with him, not so that I could go to the board meeting, so that I could go try out for the basketball team. And so he contacted the coach. He knew people in high places. And so he contacted the coach. He said, I've got a guy that wants to play ball. He'd like to walk on. He said, have him here at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And while you're at your board meeting, I'll try him out. I'll work him with the team. And then we'll see if he's good enough to go. So what happened was I went to uh, drive with Buddy Fortenberry. We went all the way to Marshall, Texas. Buddy did his board meeting. I thought, I'm going to try out for the basketball team. And I did. And I shot some three-pointers, even though we didn't have a three-point line. I shot some free throws, passed that test, played a little defense. That was a little skittish and a little scary. But anyway, at the end of the day, the basketball coach said, you can walk on, you can play. And he said, it's a privilege to play basketball here at ETBC. But he never told me it was a gift. And so when I played basketball for one semester, just to let you know, I retired I didn't realize that suffering was a part of the gift that he said was a privilege to play. And so he worked us out five hours. I had five hours of homework. I made the dean's list. It's good to go away to college when you're an only child and then play basketball. So I decided to uh, play for uh, ETBU and then for five hours the whole season, uh, we practiced and we had games. And at the end of that, I thought enough suffering. This is a gift, but no thank you for the gift. Coach, Thank you very much for the opportunity, but no thank you for the gift of continuing to play basketball. This is suffering for me. (laughs) This is way too much pain for me. I need to go on with my career in ministry. I need to get married, and this is not going to help me. This is a childhood dream that's blowing up in front of my face. Now, here's the point of what I want to say to you today. There are a lot of gifts that we receive in the body of Christ. The first gift Paul's going to talk about is the gift of belief. You can't believe unless God gives you the ability to say yes to him. But belief is a gift. Paul's going to talk about that today. But he's also going to say along with the gift that you don't deserve of belief is also the gift of suffering. It is a gift. We like to re-gift the gift that we get, but actually suffering is a part of everybody's life and pain is a part of everybody's life. So the Apostle Paul says today that it is a gift. Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30. Let's look at this text together and see if God can't speak to our hearts today and encourage us in our Together for Grace series study. Here's what Paul says. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, that's a gift, but also to suffer for his sake, that's a gift. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here 
in me. So Paul talks about this. He puts it together beautifully in this text. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The, the word for conduct is a, a word that represents citizenship. Those in Philippi were Roman citizens. And so although Philippi was 800 miles away from Rome, they always represented the citizenship of being a Roman citizen. It wasn't about distance, it was about heart. So it is a privilege to be a citizen of Rome. That's what the word conduct means. It says, let your behavior, that's another translation, would be worthy of the gospel. So if you go to a foreign country, which I've done on several occasions, they can tell who the tourists are because we're not from there. And by the way that we order food, they know that we're not from there. I remember one time in South America, I wanted, uh, it was some kind of beef thing when I went in high school. It was a beef and something, and the guy said, beefy, beefa, beefa, something else, something else. And I said yes to it. And it wasn't exactly what I wanted, nor what I ordered, but I had to understand that he was talking a foreign language to me, and if you don't know the answer, you just say yes. So I got something, but he could tell I was a tourist. I wasn't from this particular place. When I went to Jamaica um, and I ordered, uh, I think it was jerk chicken, that's a whole nother story, but I went in line, we were on the finishing up a mission trip and we stopped on the side of the road and this guy that was our tour guide uh, went ahead of us and he kind of said what we wanted and I said, I'd like, the, I'd like a chicken and some order of something and the chickens were running around, it's a little different. The chickens were running around in a field behind, and as soon as they grabbed the chicken, as soon as I ordered, they grabbed the chicken, and they grabbed the chicken, and they put the knife on the chicken and exploded the chicken, and, and I, I could not eat the chicken that they did that to, because they could tell I wasn't from here. They could tell that I was puzzled by the fact that I wasn't a citizen of this country. Now, here's what I want to say to you. You and I are not citizens of this country, although we live in this country. We're citizens of heaven. Paul's going to talk about, although we live here on this earth, we really live our lives in the heavenly places, spiritually. So Paul is saying that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So we're to allow people to see a little bit of heaven on earth by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we live in our relationships, by the way that we walk with Christ in our church. So he says, only let your conduct, only let your behavior. You could tell a tourist by the fact that they don't belong here. But you belong to me, Paul says in, in Jesus Christ. Paul says, you belong to Jesus Christ. So you should act in a way that is worthy of the gospel. The word worthy means to balance the scales. It means if you have 50 pounds on this side of the scale, you put 50 pounds on this side of the scale. You know what Paul is saying? Let your walk match your talk. That's what he's saying. He's saying those of you that have experienced saving grace in Jesus Christ, and now you have Christ living his life in and through you, conduct yourselves, continually conduct yourselves in a manner that balances the scales. So that when people see you on Monday, they don't say, oh, you're a churchgoer. They say you're a follower of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you follow the king and you balance the scales because he gives you the ability to match your walk, to match your talk. And he gives us the ability to balance the scales in our lives so that people can understand that we're really not from this world, we're from another world. And the other world that we are from is a world that's been given to us as a gift. Salvation is a gift. And although we live in, as an American citizen and a citizen of this state, we really don't belong here. Our home is in heaven. But while you're here, you walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that God's perfect. 
It means that he lives in me. It means when I stumble and I fall, I go back to who it is. And I trust him to give me the ability to make my walk and my talk match up together. Most churches have this problem because they can't match the walk and the talk inside the church. Therefore, there's no impact with missions and ministry on the outside. I'm grateful to be a part of a church that sees missions and ministry across the aisle right here. If we can't live it out right here, we have no message to the world. We have no message with our walk unless our talk and our walk in here balances the scales. And you know who gives us the power to balance the scales? It's not you, it's Christ. So even if you don't like me, you have to love me. And even if I don't like you, I have to love you. And so if we can just get to the point in a transitional time in our church and say, wait a minute, what's most important is the conduct of our lives and the worthy gospel of the call. The word worthy doesn't mean we deserve the gospel. It means it's been given to us by grace and we take seriously our walk with Jesus Christ. Listen, the message that we preach around here about Jesus Christ being in your life is a message for Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week. It's 24-7. It's surrendered the whole time. That's what Paul's saying. Now watch this. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. The good news of saving grace. When you trust Christ as your Savior, when you trust him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins, that is saving grace. And that's where most people stop. But the gospel is not just about saving grace. It's about living grace. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. It's not only the power to save us, it's the power to live through us. This gospel, this good news of Jesus being Jesus in me is the power to live. It's not just the power to save. It's the power to die because there's living grace, there's saving grace, there's dying grace, there's suffering grace, there's troubled grace. There's all kinds of graces in the scripture and grace all comes from one person, it's Jesus. And so we can trust him. So we walk in a way that's worthy of the calling of the gospel of Christ. Notice the text. So that, in order that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now let's stop right there. Some people live out the message of Christ in you when people are watching. When someone comes around, they think they're on display. Well, so-and-so's here today, so I must be on my best behavior. Do you know what Paul's saying here? The message of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, it does not matter who is around you. It doesn't matter whether I'm absent or whether I'm here. It matters that there's an audience of one. And in the audience of one that Jesus Christ is always has my eyes upon me. And so he's saying here, it doesn't matter who's around. Because some people change their behavior based on who's around. Oh, when you walk up to somebody in the hallway and they're having a conversation, they shouldn't. They'll stop if you walk up. That's a clue. Hello. I remember playing Little League Baseball right over here at the Brio site, where we all probably have something growing in us. And I remember my stance would change. When I was on the, card, I was on the Cardinals, do a little Soto here. When I was on the Cardinals, my stance would change at baseball because all the guys would be watching us, but the, the girls played softball over on this field. And my wife, she was over on this field over here. And she played softball, but when she came all the way, all the way to this field over here and put her fingers in the fence right there, 
then all of a sudden my stance changed because she was there. She wasn't absent. She was there. So I did a little better. I performed a little more closely to what I felt the calling was because she was there. Well, that's what Paul says. That's not the gospel. The gospel means that Christ in you is always in display on your life and in my life. And he's in, on display in suffering. He's on display in everything that we do. So it doesn't matter whether it's Monday morning or Tuesday. It doesn't matter. It's that the gospel goes forth. So Paul says this. So whether I come, look at the text, to see you or in maps, and I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast. Here's the word, stand fast. This is the first phrase. So we're to stand fast as the body of Christ. This is a good word for our church. We need to stand fast. You know what the word stand fast means? It means to take your position and do not move. It's like the opposition and the enemy is coming against us, but we stand fast. We just stand firm. Listen, when the friction comes and the fracturing comes in the body of Christ and things like that, we just stand firm. The, the Bible says to stand fast. So I want to say this to all of us in this room. One of the things that the devil wants to do is divide us. And so God loves unity, and he loves those who dwell in unity. So when we stand fast, we stand shoulder to shoulder with people who have the same mission, who have the same message, and who have the same ministry. Cows, when they get into the winter, oftentimes when these snow drifts will come, they will go shoulder to shoulder together to be able to help each other get through a storm and not die. And we have to be a church in a time of transition who just stands fast. Why? Because Jesus Christ stands fast in me. And there's no time for divisiveness. There's no time for disunity. There's only time for unity. There's only time for focus on him. And we must be the people that God chooses to say yes to. And when he says yes to us, then we say we stand with you. And if you stand for unity, then I don't want to have anything to do with disunity. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. It unifies us. Music may divide us. We won't go there. But not the gospel. This is important. And by the way, whichever service you go to, the music is excellent. It speaks of Christ. You can go to either service. It doesn't matter. We're about Christ. We're about unity. So Paul says to stand fast. Then he says in one spirit. So he says in one spirit and in one mind. He's talking about unity. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about to the church at Philippi. You need to stand shoulder to shoulder. You need to stand in one spirit and you need to stand in one mind. You need to have your mind so engaged on the gospel because what is the most important thing is that the gospel goes out. And we're the mouthpiece for the gospel to go out by the way that we live and conduct ourselves in a worthy manner. Then he says in the text, verse 27 is loaded. Look what he says. Striving together. The idea of striving together is a word that kind of just means bringing it all together. And so the idea of striving together, if you've ever seen runners run a race at the Olympics, they, they kind of strive together because they're put in a lane like this. There was a guy who, I think it was in 2000, I can't remember the Olympics, but he, he didn't quite do as well as he wanted in the 100 meetings in the qualifying time. So he decided that he would check into something else called the Paralympics. It's for those that have disabilities. And so he decided when he read up on the fact that there are people that run in the Paralympics, the 100 meters, and they are legally blind. And he decided that I'm going to strive together with a runner who is legally blind because I realize it's not about me, it's about him. 
And so I'm willing to relinquish the fact that I didn't have the best qualifying time and I am going to join hearts and minds and strive together with this person who needs a guide next to them. If you search it, you'll find this is true because I wouldn't tell you anything that wasn't true. And what happens is these guides have to be as fast as the runners that have disabilities. And the ones that have disabilities, you know how fast they are? Just as fast as the one who qualifies for the running of the race. They're the ones, they are fast. They are speed demons. And so not only do you have to be a really good runner, but you have to worry about telling the person to shift right, shift left as you are running. Maybe rub shoulders a little bit, get closer to me, forge ahead, do all these things. And so you're a guide to a person in the Paralympics. And that's the picture that Paul paints of striving together. Listen to me. When you decide to let go of what you think it ought to be and what it should look like and say, you know what? I'm going to help somebody else. That's when Christ really becomes Christ in your life. When you get your eyes off yourself and you said, I want to strive together. I want to come alongside someone. I want to help them become all that God wants them to be. It's not about me. It's not about my suffering. It's not about me being in jail. It's about the gospel going out. So one of the things that we can do in a time of transition is we can strive together. And we can say we're better together, together for grace, because of what God is doing in other people's lives. And when you start serving others and you start helping others, your big toe doesn't hurt as much as you thought it did. See, because your mind is off of you and your heart is off of you. So we need to come along as the family and the body of Christ and we need to strive together. Paul says, stand fast. Have the ability at fourth and one to stand your ground against the opponent. Do you know the devil's got a team too? And his team wants to destroy God's team. And he wants to push and push and push and push. And we just stand in one spirit, in one mind, striving together, trusting each other, trusting Christ in us. It's not about me. It's about helping somebody else. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on the Savior. And he will put your eyes on someone who needs you. That's what he's saying there. Now look what it says. Strive together for the faith. Look at the unifying factor the faith of the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about the good news. And here's what he says in verse 28. And not in any way be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you a sign of salvation that is from God. So what what Paul is saying here, for those of us that are walking in the living grace of God, that that relieves all of our fears. There's nothing that we have to fear together. We as the body of Christ, when we are participating in his life and we are divine partakers of his nature, then we have nothing to fear. Whatever you're facing today, you have nothing to fear if you have the faith of Jesus Christ in you. You have nothing to fear. There is nothing that you need to back away from. The idea of the word fear here means not in anything that is said to you, not in anything that is done to you, not in any thought that comes your way. The word fear means here, do not be afraid, means not in any way, shape, or form should you and I ever be afraid of anything because Christ has everything under his control. And he loves us. And he cares for us. And he has a plan. And he tells us, when you have fear, Freeman, like a a horse that is timid, a horse that is shy, you trust me. You get your eyes on me. When you have fear, you've taken your eyes off of me. But do not be frightened about anything because in your striving together, I'm going to give you a faith that presses you all the way to the finish line. 
And I've got this thing. And I want you to enjoy the ride. And I want you to experience all the life that I have to give you in the midst of people who would like to take you down into all of your opponents, into all of your adversaries. It's Christ in me that's greater than anything else. I do not have to fear the devil. The devil has already been defeated on Calvary's cross. Right? Jesus Christ has defeated him. What's he going to do? Gum me to death? Think about that. He has no power. The only power that he has is when I yield to the fleshly desires of my heart and he takes the fleshly desires of my heart and he begins to twist them and he begins to do things in my life where I have allowed him to come into the foothold place where Christ is and and I have to say, listen, I stand firm in the gospel. I stand fast in the gospel. I stand in one mind in the gospel and I'm not afraid because the victory is already mine in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to go out chasing demons and walking behind walls and saying this. You just say, it's Jesus. It is him. He is my blessed assurance. He is my victory. He is my strength. He is my glory. He is everything to me. So when I surrender to him, I just said yes to Jesus. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. That's first. Resist the devil. When you submit, you've just resisted. People go around resisting the devil. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Let me tell you something. You don't resist until you've submitted. When you submit, he's already resisted. You submit to God. Paul is saying living grace really makes a difference in your life. I promise you today, if you'll trust Christ as your Savior, not only to save you, but to live through you, you'll experience a victory that you've never experienced in your life. Here's what he says. Now, there's a sign. Here's what he says. Which to them, verse 28, is a sign of destruction or the version I'm using, New King James, proof of perdition. But to you, it's a sign of salvation that is from God. So this courage that I have is a clear sign to them, the people that come against me, the people who are my opponents, the adversaries of God. We live in a nation that has said no to God and said yes to all of the people that are adversaries and say, yes, let's go this way. Let's go the demonic way. Let's go the way of disaster because we've decided that we said as a nation that we'll leave God out of everything. And we wonder today we've left God out of everything. And let me ask you this. Isn't this a great place to live? See, we have actually shot ourselves in the foot. We've removed God from everywhere. But here's what God says. I want you to see this. He said, when it looks like the enemy's winning, the enemy's not winning. It's a sign of destruction for them. That's what the text says. Look at it. Which is to them a sign of destruction. So you would ask me, well, what's the sign of destruction? Let me ask you this question. How's the Roman Empire doing today? Are they still on top of the world? No. They're not on top of the world. They're history. But let me tell you who's doing fine today. Jesus Christ. His movement is doing very well. So it's a sign to those who oppose us. And it's a sign to our enemies that God points the finger and says, there's a day of judgment that's coming unless you bow before me. There's a day of destruction that's coming to you unless you receive the forgiveness of sins. So God points out the ability that he has to point out. And that's what the sign of perdition is. You remember the World Series? Juan Soto. Everybody's pointing their finger at him. He gets up there, that cocky. Oh, I tell you, he's cocky. And I tell you, you know, that pitch would come in and he'd be doing this. And then he'd do the, you know, like get you some. You know, what do you want? Here, come on, come on. He had an attitude about him. And you know what? Can I tell you something? When God says your enemies 
come against you, God points his finger at them and says, I'm going to take care of my people. You mess with Freeman, you're messing with my person and you're messing with me. So you're messing with me. The issue really isn't Freeman. The issue is you're messing with the gospel and the gospel is going to go forth. You go ahead and bring all of your enemies and all your adversaries with you. But I'm going to tell you what, there's a day coming where judgment will come to you and your household unless you bow. It's a sign. Look at the text. It's a sign to your adversaries, which is proof of perdition. Can I tell you something? The world is stuck with Jesus in me and stuck with Jesus in you. They can't impeach him. They will not impeach Jesus Christ. Help yourself. Do whatever you think you can do. But he's here to stay because his movement has continued on where the other empires have fallen all the way to the ground. It's a sign to your enemies that God's going to judge you. It's a sign to you, and God points his finger at us and says, it's affirmation of the salvation that lives in you. When we take heat for the gospel, when we stand up for the rights of the unborn, when we vote righteousness and not vote politics, God says, listen, I point my finger because they belong to me and you're not messing with them, you're messing with me because they belong to me to such a way that they just want to reflect and display Christ out of their life. The finger going like this, that's what the text is saying. So to you, it's a sign of salvation from God. Now here's what he says, look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you know that belief is a gift? It's a gift to you. Not only does God give you the ability to believe when he convicts your heart of your sin, he gives you the ability to believe, he enables you to believe, but listen, he sustains your belief. He sustains your belief. Till he calls you home. It is not up to you. It's up to him. And he is secure. And he is fast. And he is true to his word. So when you think of belief, it is a gift. It is not something that you earn. You do not earn your way into heaven. You come to a position like me and like others in this room who have realized that Jesus is not going to bow before us. We need to bow before him. And I came to a position as a seven-year-old boy that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. And I believed in him. And when it means believe in him, it means into him. I believed into a person. I didn't believe into a church. I believed into a person, into a relationship. And once that I believed into him, guess what God says? It's been granted on you on behalf of Christ, to suffer. Suffer for his sake. Pain is a part of the real world, but it's really a part of the Christian world. We will suffer, and notice what it says, for his sake. It is not about you. It is not about me. It is not about what we're suffering from. There's cancer. There's difficulties. There's financial disaster. There's all kinds of things that we suffer from and for, but we suffer in the ultimate way for his sake so that when we suffer, the glory of Jesus would be revealed so that people would not see our suffering without seeing the Jesus who was willing to suffer on the cross and be despised and rejected so that you and I could have life in him today. So Jesus, is, he has suffered for us. He has bled and died for us. And then he says, by the way, because you follow me, suffering is a gift. 
Some of you today are looking at your pain without purpose. You're looking at your pain without perspective. God says, look at your pain and focus on the person of Jesus who suffered the most that anybody could ever suffer. And he bled and died so that you could receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to say this. I know there's a lot of people watching. It flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. Health, wealth, prosperity. God wants to make you rich. God wants to make you healthy. God wants to give you all of these things. The problem with the health wealth message is, is it's not in the Bible. Just read your Bible. There are people who suffered. There are people who gave their life for the sake of Christ. So when people believe the wealth health message that you should never be sick, and if you don't have enough faith, then that's your problem because you didn't get well. Listen to me. Jesus Christ suffered. People in the Bible suffering. Suffering is a gift because what happens if you believe this health, wealth, prosperity message and you don't end up making it? What happens then? Everything around you crumbles. But your faith in Jesus will give you the ability to suffer. And you will suffer for his sake. Not for yours. You suffer for his sake. So the beautiful thing about the gospel is it's true. And it tells us that we're going to suffer. And it tells us that people are going to get sick. There's nothing wrong with praying for people to get healed. But the healing comes in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus chooses to heal someone, all glory go to him. If he chooses not to heal someone, people make a whole lot of money off a whole lot of people who are widows and elderly because they just want their miracle. Let me tell you what the miracle is. The miracle is that the Son of God would come and live in my life by the power of his Spirit. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. If you get well, you're still going to die. Well, God's healed me. Wonderful. I want to know if you're spiritually healed. I want to know if you're healed from your sin. Because if God heals you physically on this earth, gives you a little more time so you can live out your life and suffer for his sake, you're still going to die. The ultimate healing is to go and be with him. Paul says, when we suffer, we suffer for his sake. It's not about us. Oh, send me money. Send me a faith gift. Send me a seed gift so that you can get your healing. No, thank you. I have direct access to the God of all creation. You're not making any money off of me because everything's been paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what the text says. Not only to believe in him, this is what the text says, but to suffer for his sake. What area in your life today are you suffering, but you're suffering for your sake? It's all about you. We're called to suffer for his sake so that the glory would be revealed, so that Jesus can be Jesus in us, so that people will come to know the Jesus that we have come to know. How can you have such peace? How can you sing it as well with my soul? How can you say blessed assurance when the whole thing seems to come apart? I'll tell you why. Because it says this in verse 30. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Here's what Paul's saying. That we are not excluded from the brotherhood of suffering. 
We're not excluded from the brotherhood of suffering. Paul is saying, as you see me suffering in prison, as you understand that I just wasn't sure I was going to live or die in prison, I wasn't sure how it was going to be, but you join me in the conflict. The word conflict means an agony. So Paul says this, which you saw in me and now here is in me. Let me close with this. I think this will wrap a bow around it. Years ago, I had a friend who was in Washington and he went to the Vietnam Memorial. He said it was moving to see all of these men and women, my generation inscribed on this solemn black wall. He said, you just stand there and you look at that memorial and you think about the brotherhood of suffering. And here's what he said, but I didn't fight in Vietnam. He said, I didn't. So I can't share at a dinner table those people who survived. I will never have a dinner party with those people who survived and tell stories. And I never fought. So it just means to me that there's a wall of suffering. There's a wall of people who suffered and actually gave their lives. And here's what he said. But Christianity, there is going to be a dinner party. Because there's going to be a wall of faith. There's going to be people in heaven who you and I can actually sit down and share stories of suffering. And we can share how God used us and how all the glory goes to God. So where we can't relate to the brotherhood of suffering in this world and some that served our great country, we can relate to the brotherhood of suffering that comes for living for Jesus Christ. Because one day, God will not only redeem our suffering, He has already redeemed us, so He will redeem our suffering in the way that we will never suffer any anymore. We will never be in any pain anymore. We will never have another cancer cell that's spread in our body. We will always be perfect as he is perfect. And we will trust him not only now, but we will trust him for all eternity. And we will be able to share stories around the dinner table of how great our God is and how all suffering had its purpose in bringing people to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying. So here's what faith does. It lifts us above our fears. It lifts us above our fears. I'm talking to some people who you're fearful. You have anxiety. You're very fearful about every little thing. It's kind of like taking off on the runway. I don't, I don't like planes, but the takeoff is rough for me because there's always a bumpy ride until we get here. And it really bothers me and it really concerns me. And it's just like faith is this. God just kind of takes the nose of the plane of our life and he puts it on cruise control. And he says, listen, these little bumps that you're having in the road right now, this suffering that you're doing is for my sake and for my glory. So you be faithful as I am faithful to you and you trust me because one day you're going to soar and one day you're going to be with me. And it's all for the purpose that people would know me. Do you know him personally today? In your suffering, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Because if you don't know him, you're fighting a battle alone that was never meant for you to fight. Let God fight your battles.